will begin with a reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. To be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. I would move heaven, hell, and anything in between to get to you. You wouldn't be safe anyway if I was mad at you. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I guess not. All they were was shot and left. <laughs> if it was a horrendous crime, why didn't I shoot them between the eyes, cut their penis off, stick it in their mouth, you know, do all kinds of gross stuff? All they were was shot and left, you know? Hello, strangers, and finally, welcome to a new episode of Strange Talk Podcast. My God, it has been a very long time coming, and I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode, and it was worth the wait uh, for those of you that were waiting. Um, yeah, it's been a while since I actually recorded an episode. Um, since I actually started working at Steezy, um, unfortunately, I'm not working there anymore. I quit. Um, I just thought the work environment was very toxic, and it was just very stressful, and I was bringing that shit with me home and you know i just didn't think it was like worth it anymore um i could go into details but i really don't think so i don't think it'd benefit anybody if you're really curious and you really really want to be nosy and you want to know the drama and the fucking detail you can message me on strange uh, on instagram at strange talk podcast or email me at strange talk podcast at outlook.com what's that email again it's at strange talk podcast at outlook.com Without further ado, let's finally get to the episode. I hope you guys enjoy today's episode. It's all about the strange disappearance of the Sodder children. And if you don't know this case, it's a pretty strange one. Nothing supernatural, just very fucking weird and strange circumstances that center around this family and their burned fucking home. So I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Let's get to it. For nearly four decades, Anyone driving down Route 16 near Fayetteville, West Virginia could see a billboard bearing the grainy images of five children, all dark-haired and solemn-eyed. Their names and ages, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5, stenciled beneath along with speculation about what happened to them. Fayetteville was and is a small town with a main street that doesn't run longer than 100 yards, and rumors always played a larger role in the case than evidence. No one even agreed on whether the children were dead or alive. What everyone knew for certain was this. On the night before Christmas 1945, George and Jenny Sauter and nine of their ten children went to sleep, while one son was away in the army. Around 1 a.m., a fire broke out. George and Jenny and four of the children escaped, but the other five were never seen again. George had tried to save them, breaking a window to re-enter the house, slicing a swath of skin from his arm. He could see nothing through the smoke and fire, which had swept through all of the downstairs rooms, living and dining room, kitchen, office, and his and Jenny's bedroom. He took frantic stock of what he knew. Two-year-old Sylvia, whose crib was in their bedroom, was safe outside, as was 17-year-old Marion and two sons, 23-year-old John 
and 16-year-old George Jr., who had fled the upstairs bedroom they shared, singeing their hair on their way out. He figured Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty still had to be up there, cowering in two bedrooms on either end of the hallway, separated by a staircase that was now engulfed in flames. He raced back outside, hoping to reach them through the upstairs windows, but the ladder he always kept propped against the house was strangely missing. An idea struck. He would drive one of his two coal trucks up to the house and climb atop it to reach the windows. But even though they'd functioned perfectly the day before, none of the cars or trucks would start for some reason. He ransacked his mind for another option. He tried to scoop water from a rain barrel but found it was frozen solid. Five of his children were stuck somewhere inside those great whipping ropes of smoke. He didn't notice that his arm was slick with blood and that his voice hurt from screaming their names. His daughter Marion sprinted to a neighbor's home to call the Fayetteville Fire Department but couldn't get any operator response. A neighbor who saw the blaze made a call from a nearby tavern but again no operator responded. Exacerbated, the neighbor drove into town and tracked down Fire Chief F.J. Morris, who initiated Fayetteville's version of a fire alarm, which is known as the phone tree system, whereby one firefighter phones another, who then phones another. The fire department was only two and a half miles away, but the crew didn't arrive until 8 a.m., by which point the Sauter's home had been reduced to just a smoking pile of ash. George and Jenny assumed that five of their children were dead, but a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of any remains. Chief Morris suggested that the blaze had been hot enough, so hot, that fire completely cremated the bodies. A state police inspector combed the rubble and attributed the fire to faulty wiring. George covered the basement with five feet of dirt, intending to preserve the site as a memorial for his children. The coroner's office issued five death certificates just before the new year, attributing their deaths to either fire or suffocation. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sado in Tulia, Sardinia in 1895 and immigrated to the United States in 1908, when he was only 13 years old. An older brother who had accompanied him to Ellis Island immediately returned to Italy, leaving George on his own. He found work on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to the laborers, and after a few years moved to Smithers, West Virginia. Smart and ambitious, he first worked as a driver and then launched his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. One day, he walked into a local store called The Music Box and met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cuprini, who had come over from Italy when she was three years old. They married and had 10 children between 1923 and 1943, and settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, an Appalachian town with a small but active Italian immigrant community. The Sauters were, said by one county magistrate, they were one of the most respected middle-class families around. And George held strong opinions about everything from business to current events, politics, but was for some reason reluctant to talk about his past. He never explained what had happened back in Italy to make him want to leave. The Sauters planted flowers across the space where their house had once stood and began to stitch together a series of odd moments leading up to the fire. 
there was a stranger who appeared at the home a few months earlier, back in the fall, asking about hauling work. He meandered to the back of the house, pointed to two separate feed boxes, and said, This is going to cause a fire someday. Strange, yes, George thought, especially since he had just had the wiring checked by the local power company, which pronounced it to be in fine condition. And around the same time, another man tried to sell the family life insurance and became irritated when George declined. Your goddamn house is going up in smoke, he warned, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. George was indeed outspoken about his dislike for the Italian dictator, occasionally engaging in heated arguments with other members of Fayetteville's Italian community, and at the time, didn't take the man's threats seriously. The older Sauter sons also recalled something peculiar. Just before Christmas, they noticed a man parked along US Highway 21, intently watching the younger kids as they came home from school. Around 12.30 Christmas morning, after the children had opened a few presents and everyone had gone to sleep, the shrill ring of the telephone broke through quiet. Jenny rushed to answer it. An unfamiliar female voice asked for an unfamiliar name. There was raucous laughter and glasses clinking in the background. Jenny said, you have the wrong number, and hung up. Tiptoeing back to bed, she noticed that all of the downstairs lights were still on and the curtains were open. The front door was unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and returned to her room. She had just begun to doze when she heard one sharp, loud bang on the roof and then a rolling noise. An hour later, she was roused once again, this time by heavy smoke filling into her room. Jenny couldn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, nothing, no trace, no body. She conducted a private experiment of her own, and in the experiment, what she did was burn animal bones. She burned chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones to see if the fire consumed them completely. Each time, she was left with a heap of charred bones. She knew that remnants of various household appliances had been found in the burned-out basement, still identifiable, so she was confused as to why nothing could be left remained. An employee at a crematory informed her that bones remain after bodies are burned for two hours at 2,000 degrees. Their house was destroyed in 45 minutes. So if their house was destroyed in only 45 minutes, there should be something that's there because the employee at the crematorium told Jenny that when they cremated bodies, their bones would still remain for two hours, still trying to burn in 2000 degree Fahrenheit. The collection of odd moments kept growing from there. A telephone repairman told the Sodders that their lines appeared to have been cut and not burned. They realized that if the fire had been electrical, the result of the faulty wiring, as the official report stated, then the power would have been dead. So how do you explain the lights being on downstairs. A witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle used for removing car engines. Could he be the reason why George's truck refused to start? Because remember, George wanted to pull one of his trucks up to the upstairs bedroom window so he can bash it in and try to see if he can help his five children that were still stuck in the home escape. But if you remember, the car couldn't work, so maybe that's the reason why. Somebody probably sabotaged the truck. 
These are all a bunch of weird coincidences or just odd things that happened around the Sauter family incident. One day, while the family was visiting the site, Sylvia found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jenny recalled hearing the hard thud on the roof, the rolling sound. George concluded it was a napalm pineapple bomb of the type used in warfare. So essentially what she found was it looked like George believed it was, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the grenades that were used during World War II. They kind of look, they called them pineapple bombs because they had a shape and it almost looked identical. Not identical, but it looked like a pineapple. So I don't know if you're familiar or if I described it <laughs> in great detail for you to comprehend what I'm trying to fucking say, what kind of grenade it was. But yeah, that's the, what the grenade looked like. Then came the reports of sightings. A woman claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was in progress. A woman operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, some 50 miles west, said she saw the children the morning after the fire. I served them breakfast, she told police. There was a car with Florida license plates at the tourist court, too. A woman at Charleston Hotel saw the children's photos in a newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction, she said in a statement. I do not remember the exact date, however the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to speak to the children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking very rapidly in Italian. Immediately the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left the early next morning." Now these are all accounts that supposedly witnesses came forward um, to the Sauter family and private investigators saying that uh, they saw the children. Um, and so forth you know so it, that's the crazy thing can you imagine being the father of this family you're you're missing and the mother you're missing your children you're not sure whether they're dead like that has to be so fucked up to just think about to just put your like try to put yourself in that situation imagine one half of you has to either believe that your children are dead and they perished in the fire or another half of you has to believe that they're probably out there somewhere, that they were kidnapped or something happened and you just kind of want to hold on to that shred, that one little shred of hope. But for some fucking reason, like, there's just no answers. In 1947, George and Jenny sent a letter about the case to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and received a reply from J. Edgar Hoover. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Hoover's agents said they would at least assist if they could get permission from the local authorities, but for some fucking weird reason, nobody knows why, the Fayetteville Police and Fire Department both declined the help that the FBI was willing to give to the investigation. Now that's kind of fucking weird. Next, the Sodders turned to a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley, who discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George was a member of the coroner's jury that deemed the fire accidental. He also heard a curious story from a Fayetteville minister about F.J. Morris, the fire chief. Although Morris had claimed no remains were found, he supposedly confided in the priest that he discovered a heart in the ashes of the rubble. 
He hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene of the Slaughter's home. Tinsley persuaded Mor uh, Morris to show them the spot. Together, they dug up the box and took it straight to a local funeral director, who poked and prodded the heart and concluded it was simply just beef liver, untouched by the fire. Soon afterward, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others in the community that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all, and that he had just simply buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hopes that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. And nobody thinks that's fucking weird. Like, why would you want that? Like, you know, maybe his heart was in the right place. I'm like, I'm playing devil's advocate and I'm trying to give the fucking fire chief the benefit of the doubt, even though it's probably not true. But maybe he was trying to, maybe his heart was in the right place and he was trying to like, just, oh man, he saw the family so distraught over missing their five children. They perished in that fire. You know, he's hearing rumors that, you know, George and Jenny Sauter are hiring private investigators and doing their own investigations. It's not to cover up any, you know, wrongdoing or any kind of fucking fucked up shit he probably did or he was in on or he got paid off. It was probably simply because he felt bad for the family and he just wanted to lay to rest, you know, the, the spirits of the children, if you will, by placing something fake so that we could give some kind of closure to the family. You know, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I'm not saying that's what happened, but on a, I would say at least 10% chance, maybe that's what it was. <laughs> Over the next few years, the tips and leads continued to come in. George saw a newspaper photo of school children in New York City and was convinced that one of them was his daughter, Betty. He drove to Manhattan in search of the child, but her parents refused to speak to him. In August of 1949, the Sodders decided to mount a new search at the fire scene and brought in a Washington, D.C. pathologist named Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was thorough, uncovering several small objects, damaged coins, a partly burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae, belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at death should have been 16 or 17 years. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at age 23, are still unfused. On this basis, the bones show greater skeletal maturation than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, the oldest missing slaughter child. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 years old maturation. The vertebrae showed no evidence that they had been exposed to fire though, the report said. And it is very strange that no other bones were found in the allegedly careful excavation of the basement of the house. Noting that the house reportedly burned for only about a half an hour or so, it is said that one would expect to find the full skeletal remains of the five children rather than only four vertebrae. I was going to say vertebrae. So again, if you don't understand what was being said in that report, basically Hunter's report concluded that if the house burned for only 30 minutes, there is no way that there wouldn't be at least full skeleton skeletal remains of any of the children so that's where they're a little perplexed at that the house burned for only 30 minutes or so 
and yet there was no bones of the children whatsoever. The bones, the report concluded, were most likely in supply of dirt George used to fill in the basement to create the memorial for his children. So they decided that the bones that they found, the vertebrae bones, probably just came from a dirt pile that George was picking up to put the dirt over the memorial site of where their house once stood. Because if you remember, George and Jenny turned their house into a memorial for the five children that were missing. The Smithsonian report prompted two hearings at the Capitol in Charleston, after which Governor Oki L. Patterson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders their search was hopeless and declared the case closed. Undeterred, though, George and Jenny erected the billboard along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for any information leading to the recovery of their children. They soon increased the amount to $10,000. A letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying the oldest girl, Martha, was in a covent there. Another tip came in from Texas where a patron in a bar overheard an incriminating conversation about a long ago Christmas Eve fire in West Virginia. Someone in Florida claimed the children were staying with a distant relative of Jenny's. George traveled to the country to investigate each lead, always returning home without any answers. And that's the most fucked up part. This is a, a father and mother who are just simply looking for their children and just end up with nothing in the end. Just more questions and no answers. In 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed only to her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but had no return address. Inside was a photo of a man in his mid-twenties. On its flip side, a cryptic handwritten note read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Fanky. Little boys, A90132 or 35. She and George couldn't deny the resemblance to their Louis, who was only nine at the time of the fire. Beyond the obvious similarities, dark curly hair, dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, strong nose, the same upward tilt of the left eyebrow. Once again, they hired a private detective and sent him to Kentucky but for some weird reason, they never heard from that private investigator again. The Sodders feared that if they published the letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. Instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis and hung an enlarged version over the fireplace. Time is running out for us, George said in an interview, but we only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. Unfortunately, George would never find out what happened to his children because he died a year later after that interview in 1968, still hoping for a break in the case. Jenny erected a fence around her property and began adding rooms to her home, building layer after layer between her and the outside world. Since the fire, she had worn black exclusively as a sign of mourning and continued to do so until her very own death in 1989. So Jenny, as well, didn't get any answers as to whereabouts of her missing children. Billboard finally did come down, though. Her children and grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own. Now, this is a theory that the grandchildren seem to... The general consensus is, is this is what they believe happened that fateful night. The local mafia had tried to recruit George, and he declined. 
so they tried to extort money from him, and George refused. The children were kidnapped by someone they knew, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, told them about the fire, and offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived the night, if they had, and if they'd lived for decades. If it really was Lewis in that photograph, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. So that's what the grandchildren's like theory based around what happened that night can explain why they probably didn't try to contact them if they were alive. The youngest and last surviving solder child, Sylvia, is now 69 years old and doesn't believe her siblings perished in the fire. When time permits, she visits crime sleuthing websites and engages with people still interested in her family's mystery. Her very first memories are of that night in 1945 when she was only two years old. She will never forget the sight of her father's bleeding or the terrible symphony of everyone's screams, and she is no closer now to understanding why. So that was the episode of The Strange Disappearance of the Solder Children. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Hope you guys found all the little itty bitty details fascinating and and scrumptious. But uh, yeah, so it's been a very long time since I recorded an episode and I'm just happy to start getting back into that thing. I hope I can keep up. I hope I don't disappear. I hope my fucking like depression and shit just doesn't keep me from you know, staying on track. Um, but originally I wanted to release this episode on Monday, but if I'm being honest with you, getting back into the rhythm of recording and editing and, and, and finding the music and, and, and just making the music up. For those of you that don't know, the, I usually found like free, um, fair use type of music, uncopyrighted music that I would provide, but I would at least accredit the people that created the music, you know, usually in the synopsis of the episodes that you would find wherever it is that you listen to strange talk podcast but um yeah uh all this music that's featured in this episode including the new intro i hope you guys enjoy the new intro including the new intro all the music was actually created by me i know it sounds like i'm kind of jerking myself off here and giving myself a lot of credit but fuck dude i'm not gonna lie it took me a long time to create all that shit it took me a long time to edit all of this um especially because i'm coming back into this like brand new um if you don't know and um or if you do know whatever fuck it um, I had to buy a new PC. Uh, my PC fucking took a shit on me. I think honestly it was my fault. I was trying to change out the RAM. Something happened. I think I shorted it. Caused the electron, a little like low voltage electric shock, and it just fucked up the fucking motherboard from there. And then my computer would turn on, but nothing would d- display on on my uh, monitor. Uh, so, anyways, yeah. So now I have to like rework all the editing techniques that I had. I have to. Because basically, uh, the editing software that I use to edit the audio and mix all the sounds and, and music, I use Audacity. Uh, it's a free-to-use program, so if you're looking into getting into podcasting and you're looking for like a software, a free-to-use software, uh, Audacity actually gets the job done you know, pretty well. And it's really easy to use. You can look up videos on YouTube to find it. But yeah, um, so on Audacity, they they have this like cool feature where you can create presets for your audio. Um, if you have a particular like way you like your sound to sound, you can actually set that to automatically a preset. And so I had that a lot. So that way it made my editing a lot faster and smoother. Um, I could edit little snippets of audio to a particular way. But because I have a brand new PC, 
all those presets are gone. Um, none of them saved over. Um, I think it's because when I had to plug in my um, external hard drive where I keep all my um, audio files, I think I formatted it and like an idiot, I forgot that formatting gets rid of that shit. So yeah, um, I got rid of everything. So that's why I had to make a new intro and everything. But I was going to make a new intro anyways because I'm starting this brand new. There's a brand new fucking logo. I hope you guys enjoy the fucking logo. I hope you guys enjoy the new intro music. Uh, tell me what you guys think. You guys can hit me up at Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast or email me at Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. What's that email again? It's Strange Talk Podcast at Outlook.com. <coughs> so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode again. Uh, this show wouldn't be anything without you, the listeners. So again, I appreciate you guys coming back and listening to this little show of mine because without you, this show would be nothing. So. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Not sure what it's going to be about yet, but you guys will know. Just follow me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast, and you guys will find out what the fuck the episode is going to be about. And my God, it's good to fucking be back. And I hope I can keep this up. So, yeah, as always, stay fucking strange. <laughs>